Let's get into the Word. Open your Bibles tonight to uh, the book of John. You know, the things we take for granted as we, we serve the Lord, again, referencing the, Tony, the, the guy that just gave his heart to the Lord, we're looking up passages of scriptures the other day, and he's uh, trying to find it in the Bible, has no clue where John is, you know, John could be where Genesis is for as far as he's concerned, he has no clue, you know, so he's watching everybody else and trying to get an indication, finally he just said, would you find it for me? <laughs> and uh, some of those things after we serve the Lord for a while, we just kind of take for granted, don't we? But John chapter 20, Father, as we look tonight at um, a series that we're going to start on talking about miracles, we are hungry, hungry, not just for the sign, we're hungry to see your power demonstrated that your name would be heralded. Lord, that as you reign and as you work through your people, Jesus Christ would be lifted up. You'd be high and exalted. Father, I want us as a congregation to get to a place where you can trust us with your power. That we will not take any glory or any fame or any pat on the back or any attention and not steal anything from you that belongs to you. It's because of you that anything happens, Lord. We are just clay pots, and we have this treasure that resides in earthen vessels. And we are excited and ecstatic about who you are and what you give us and what you've done to us and what you want to do through us, Lord. So bring us to a place of broken humility, Lord, where we could allow signs and wonders. And as the disciples would say, Uh, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Lord, that we would be able to speak with that kind of authority in our life, we pray. We thank you for it in your name. Amen. Amen. Anybody hungry for that kind of stuff? Yeah, I am too. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. In many other signs, truly, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. It's interesting, John saying, I can't record all that Jesus did. Over the next several weeks, uh, I'll be preaching on the principles of miracles, and I'll be using specifically the Gospel of John to do that for our, our resource. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're referred to as the Gospels. They tell a lot of the same stories that happen, but they're all told from different vantage points, different personalities viewing them. Um, and... Uh, John, as we read the text, concedes that there, there were many miracles which Jesus did, but he didn't record them in this gospel. In fact, he says that if every word and miracle of Jesus were recorded, that uh, the world would not be able to contain the books in which they were written. You find that in John 21, 25. He says that a little later on. But the reason I want to use John's gospel is because John tells us that he has a specific purpose in providing the miracles of Jesus 
um, that he does. And so church fathers have traditionally isolated seven specific miracles in the Gospel of John. The first of which we look at uh, in the next chapter is when he turned the water into wine. You remember that story? It happened at the the, the uh, wedding of Cana there. And Jesus turned the water into wine. And then the second is the healing of the nobleman's son. That's in chapter 4. The third one is the cure of a paralyzed man. And just imagine being the paralyzed man. Be, imagine being paralyzed. I, I personally, it would be really hard for me to imagine being paralyzed. But imagine not being able to move and boom, miraculously being healed so that you have complete mobility. It's, it's an awesome miracle. Um, the fourth is the feeding of the 5,000, which was an incredible miracle as well. The fifth is walking on the sea. The sixth is the healing of a blind man. And the seventh is the raising up of Raz- Lazarus from the dead. Now, how many would love to have been by that graveside? That'd be a little fun to watch, wouldn't it? I always have this mental picture of this guy wrapped up in grave clothes, kind of hopping out of the out of the tomb, you know, and Jesus says, unwrap him. But as the tomb gets ready to open up, they're all going, oh, no, don't open it. It's going to stink. And yet they find something totally different. They find this resurrected friend of Jesus. So seven is a significant number. It, it's used in Scripture to represent fullness or completion or perfection, oft times referred to. But providing these seven miracles, John's giving us enough to see that Jesus is who he says he is, and he is who the scriptures and the prophets and the psalmist and the history prophesy that the Messiah indeed would be. They're not just recorded just randomly to say, hey, look at this cool thing Jesus did, like a magician popping things out of the hat. But John is specifically pointing these out to point everybody to all the prophecies and things that were said about Jesus to say, indeed, this must be the Son of God. So given that, John says there were many other miracles he could have referenced, and he could assume, we can assume, that the seven he chooses are significant, perhaps pointing to something deeper than the mere miracle itself, and hopefully we'll kind of unmask a little bit of that tonight. A miracle is not a miracle for the sake of just simply doing a miracle. But in the life of Christ, each miracle demonstrates again and again that he is the long-awaited and the anticipated Messiah. The first thing I want to look at is the definition of a miracle. What is a miracle? We hear people use the word miracle these days to describe everything. You know, a batter hits a a walk-off home run to win a division series and the announcer says, It's a miracle! Or someone has never worked a day in his life and he finally gets a job and his family says, it's a miracle. And the guy's finally working. Or a husband cleans the house and does the dishes before his wife returns home from work and she walks in the house and she says, it's got to be a miracle. He did some work around the house. The fact of the matter is, if everything is that is unusual is a miracle, then a miracle doesn't really mean much. It's just an unusual circumstance. So there's got to be more to it. In Scripture, a miracle is not a coincidence. It's not simply a rare event or not something merely out of the ordinary. But a miracle is an event that goes beyond the natural. It really is something that is supernatural, above the things of nature. It's something beyond the physical. It's beyond the ordinary. A miracle involves the suspension of natural laws and events to accomplish something with which without divine intervention would never otherwise have transpired. The key phrase in there would be without divine intervention. It would never have 
been otherwise fulfilled. In short, we might say a miracle is the work of God in the world of humanity in a way that transcends human capacity to accomplish it. We don't have the ability in ourselves to make those things happen. If I wrote you a check tonight for a million dollars, that would not be a miracle. The miracle would be you going, taking it to the bank and cashing it and getting the money out of the bank. That would be a miracle because I can tell you on my account that it would be impossible for you to get a million dollars out of my checking account. It would have to be a God thing or a gross error on the bank's part. But a miracle is a sign, and I want to kind of interject or replace, transfer those two words, miracle, sign, tonight. A miracle is a sign. In fact, John's gospel, the word miracle is never used anywhere in John. He always uses this word sign. As you see in our text, John refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs. That is, these acts of Jesus signify something about who Jesus is. And by definition, miracles are not commonplace. Miracles are unique and powerful because they are unusual and, as we mentioned earlier, supernatural. So Jesus was an uncommon man because of the words he spoke and the deeds that he did. You find that every time Jesus speaks, he, he, has, he says things to say that people just, wow. In fact, we hear those that are near him commentating, wow, we never heard anybody speak with such authority as this man speaks. Never a man spoke like him, and never a man had the power to do the things that Jesus did. I know that Jesus has given believers the power to do the works that he did, and the Bible says that even greater things than this shall you do. Now, some believe that um, that phrase, greater things than this shall you do, refers to you doing greater miracles, something more supernatural than Jesus. I'm not sure how you could do that, but some believe that that it means that, and I'm not inferring that it doesn't mean that, but others um, uh, suggest that it means that we'll do greater number of miracles than Jesus did. That seems to make a little more sense to me because there's a lot more of us that should be filled with the power of God, which should be able to multiply the miracles much better. But in any case, uh, the Lord has given us authority to do that. So there is only one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. And as we define the miracles, let's look at the purpose of miracles. Miracles have a, a powerful place in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, John tells us that these miracles are listed so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. So there's a combined effort of what's to transpire because of these signs and wonders. So Jesus doesn't go, you know, Lazarus come out of the grave, so everybody can just go, oh, wow, that was cool. He's doing it so that people would look and say, that, something unordinary about him, something extraordinary about him, and this must be the Son of God. So John understood that the Messiah would come and would work great wonders among his people. Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke's gospel when he comes out of the wilderness. You remember the 40 days and 40 nights that he spent in the wilderness, and there was a time of tempting and testing for Jesus. He comes out of the wilderness after this fasting and tempting time, and he comes out victoriously, and he goes directly to the synagogue, and Jesus' first thing he does is he preaches and he teaches in the synagogue. And when he came to the synagogue of his hometown there in Nazareth, Luke records this. In uh, the 16th verse 
of uh, chapter 4. It says, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. I don't know about you, but when I read verses like that, there's some cultural things that we, we kind of miss. Like Jesus just stands up randomly. Uh, you know, this was just the carpenter's son up to this point. Remember? He hasn't really done anything miraculous or, or those kind of things, but he's getting ready to start his ministry, and he comes to the synagogue, and he just stands up to read, and the priests hand him the scrolls, and the Scripture says that Jesus begins to read. He reads again here in verse 18, chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. I believe this is the passage out of Isaiah. Um, the captives, and to recover of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to reclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So Jesus was now, as he's reading this, it's reading something that's prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus all of a sudden is standing there and he's saying, I am this. I am the he that's going to come and proclaim and set liberty to and heal the brokenhearted and all that. In essence, he was saying, I am the Messiah. I am this one that Isaiah prophesied about. And Jesus was saying, I'm the one who is the anointed one. In fact, the word Messiah is the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for Messiah is anointed. That Jesus was the anointed one. And the word Christ is from the Greek, and it means the same thing as Messiah. So the anointed one and the Messiah, the Christ, all of those words are synonymous with one another. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. In other words, I am the anointed one and I am the Christ because that's what God has placed upon me. And there were many false Christs then, there still are today, many false Christs. And there are many uh, through the years who had claimed to be the Messiah. So what made Jesus any different? What made Jesus different than all the rest that proclaimed to be who they were and said who they were? In fact, um, I'm told that uh, around just the United States now, there are about a, a thousand individuals who claim to be the Christ. They, they believe that they are Christ. Um, some of them travel around doing strange, bizarre things like carrying big wooden crosses. And, and uh, some of them are mentally deranged. Um, some of them are, I would probably even suggest, maybe demonically influenced, but professing to be the Christ. There are many of those. But Jesus continues to quote Isaiah, and in quoting that passage, provides the proof of Messiahship. He says, Messiah would preach the gospel to the poor. Did we see Jesus doing that? When we say preach the gospel, we often think that he's got to get up and preach a sermon. But preaching is proclaiming good news. If you're poor, what would the good news be to you? If you had no food to eat, what would good news be to you? A meal? <laughs> you know, if you're hungry, what would something good be? Just something to eat would be good. He said that he preached the gospel to the poor he would heal the brokenhearted. Do we see Jesus doing that in his ministry? Proclaiming liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. Setting at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
What was the acceptable year of the Lord? It was time when the Messiah would come and say, in the fullness of time, Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So it was this acceptable time when God said, of all times in, the, in history, Jesus would just show up on this planet and inject himself into the human race to be this Messiah that was prophesied hundreds of years before. So Jesus was inviting the people to observe his life. In essence, what he was saying was, this is who I am. I'm giving you my credentials right here. Now watch me for three years and you test me and see if I am the son of God. Really, that's what Jesus was saying in the temple. I'm going to do all of that, as Isaiah prophesied I would do. So he says, watch me walk, watch me talk, watch me work. And then based upon Scripture, determine if I fulfill the prophecies concerning the the Messiah. In fact, Jesus said, search the Scriptures. These are they which testify of me. That's Jesus' words himself. I want you to search the Scriptures and see if the Scripture backs up what my life is living. Boy, I thought, man, if if, uh, we made that statement to someone, search the Scriptures and see if I am a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That's kind of a rough statement, isn't it? You search the scriptures and see if I really am a believer. Am I really walking the walk and am I really living, fleshing out what scripture says I should be as a child of God? And um, Jesus' ministry would be a ministry of healing words, broken hearts, healing the touch of broken bodies and liberating others of those who are captive to sin. But Jesus was saying, in effect, if I don't fill the bill, then you ought to reject me. But if I do what has been prophesied of me, then how can you deny that I am the Christ? So this powerful, uh, remember when John the Baptist was, was in prison, um, he didn't understand the Messiah had not come, that the Messiah had, had not come at this point in history to be a political figure to overthrow Rome because that's what many of Jesus' followers thought, that here comes Jesus and he's finally going to get rid of this, this Roman government that was so powerful and so corrupt and he was going to set up a new kingdom. And he did that in his own way. He set up a new kingdom, but he wasn't coming to overthrow a Roman empire. He was coming to start something totally new. So John was kind of confused when John gets thrown in prison and John ends up asking the question, is this really the Christ? See, Messiah had not come to establish his throne in Jerusalem, but to establish in the hearts of men. Jesus said, I will write, inscribe them upon your hearts. What used to be a written rule of law, Jesus says, now I'm going to allow the spirit of the word to be implanted upon your heart. In essence, the Holy Spirit lives inside you, and the scripture says, he's the one who leads you and guides you into all truth. Amen? And that's what it means by writing it upon your heart. Jesus' mothers and sisters and brothers didn't, uh, did not understand this. In fact, it wasn't until after the resurrection that his own disciples understood the nature of why Jesus really came. They were kind of confused when Jesus starts telling me he's going to die. Like, no, you can't die. What are you talking about dying? And then when he did die, they kind of all moped around and groped around and, until the resurrection happened. And even after Jesus told them that was going to happen, they still had a hard time believing. In fact, Thomas says, I was just reading the other day, Thomas said, not until I put my fingers in the hole in his hand and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. And it's interesting because Jesus, the first thing Jesus says when he sees Thomas, he says, hey, Thomas, how you doing? Hey, put your hand in my side. Touch my hand. 
And he wanted Thomas to know, I, I knew what you were already thinking long before it was spoken to me. I, I didn't hear you say those words, but I heard you saying it in the spirit. And so go ahead, Thomas. I want to prove to you one more time. I am Jesus. And so he affirmed to himself that he indeed was the son of God. So he wasn't being born to become an earthly king. He already was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no king on this planet. There's no president on this planet. There's no ambassador on this planet that compares to Jesus Christ. I don't care how powerful their government is. Jesus Christ will rule and reign for all eternity in spite of any man, in spite of any government. But he came to be a sacrifice and he came to pay the price that you and I couldn't pay. And that was the price for our sin. Our price, the price for our sin was huge. He came to become a man, to walk in our shoes so that he could die our death and pay our debt. But when John the Baptist, the first person to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, after Jesus began his public ministry... John, who's looking for the throne of David to be established through Jesus, doesn't understand why he is now in prison. And he says, where's Jesus? Why are Roman soldiers still walking the streets of Judah? Why is the the puppet king Herod, the one who has placed John in prison, still on the throne? I don't get it, is what John's saying from the prison cell. And John sends his disciples to ask Jesus one question. And this is what they ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, John, he's in prison. He sent us to ask you, are you the coming one or do we look for someone else? Now, this is John who knew Jesus. He's asking, you know, to us, post all of Christ's life, we look at it and we say, John, how could you not see it? But again, he had the mindset that Jesus was coming to overthrow a government, and not set up an uh, earthly kingdom, but rather to set up a spiritual kingdom. So how did Jesus answer this question? He answered the question by pointing to the miracles that John's disciples themselves witnessed. He said to them in Matthew eleven three through 7 he said, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see... The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor, uh, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What Jesus was doing, it's pointing back to the very first scripture he read when he came out and started his ministry. This is me, I am the anointed one. He was really pointing clear back to a prophecy, clear in Isaiah. And now here it is being fulfilled. In other words... The proof of Jesus' Messiahship was his words and his work. The words he spoke and the miracles he did were all the witnesses that he needed. And yet, when the Pharisees demanded of Jesus a sign, and they wanted Jesus to perform a miracle like some kind of sideshow, Jesus refused to do it. Listen, God doesn't have to prove himself to you. Sometimes in our walk with the Lord, we say, God... If you are real, show me this. You understand God doesn't have to do that to prove that he is who he is? Who are we to point a finger at God and say, if you are real, you do something? Isn't that kind of backward? It's like the pottery saying to the pot. (laughs) It's kind of whacked, isn't it? It's really backwards. 
It's the creation saying to the creator, if you're real, show me. You know, he said, wait a minute, I made you. I don't have to show you anything. The fact that you're existing ought to be enough. But Jesus would refuse to be a sideshow. Matthew 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 38. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's really speaking of his death and resurrection there, wasn't he? Then in Matthew 16, 1, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. See, they, they just wanted the sideshow. They didn't really want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They just wanted to have him do another wow. In Luke eleven sixteen, again, others testing him sought from him to, to give a sign from heaven. So here's the paradox. Now, the miracles that Jesus performed were a sign for people who did not demand the sign. The brokenhearted, the poor, the blind, the ones who were dead. They didn't go demanding anything from Jesus. In fact, many of them came humbly and just asked him. Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. What a difference in demanding a sign and asking for mercy from God. It's all in our viewpoint. But those who were intent on rejecting Jesus, he could do nothing for them. He could heal the blind or make the lame to leap. He could raise a man who had been dead and buried for four days, and still they would not believe because they didn't really want to. The miracles were signs to those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. And that's what the Spirit says in the book of Revelation. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying. What's he really saying there? He said, there's more, there's more to the word. Listen, there's more to the word than what's written on the pages. Are you, are, are you, you were with me when I say that? There's more to the word what's written on the pages. What happens if you get reading the pages, the Holy Spirit's going to, there are riches within these pages, that God's going to reveal to you, I think, um, a revelation of the depth of His Word, a revelation of the richness of His Word, a revelation that will really transform something inside of you, solidify something inside of you. See, if you read it for face value, it's a great book has a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight in it. But when you read it for, for richness value, for spirit teaching value, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself saying, wow, I read something like that over... That's right, that says the same thing. And oh God, there's something about that word. And you start looking at that word and, and God brings out a meaning to you and you say, wow, I never saw that before. And you start flipping through and what you're going to find out is it's all intertwined. It's one book, it's one word, it's one letter. It's God's Spirit crying out to you and trying to get you past the natural things of this life and into a deeper spiritual realm where you understand things that cannot be understood by the natural mind. It has to be understood by the spiritual man. And God wants us to get there. There are those who doubt the miracle accounts there, there are some who deny even the possibility of a miracle then or even now today. 
And they say that the people of Jesus' day were unsophisticated or unscientific and therefore declared something to be a miracle for which there was probably a very logical explanation at that time. There's a magician who calls himself the Amazing Randy. And he has uh, promised to give a million dollars to anyone who could give conclusive evidence of a miracle. Interesting. Never mind that the Bible, in the Bible we have written testimonies of eyewitnesses of miracles. There are still people who, like the Pharisees, no matter what kind of miracle is shown to them, will not believe. I could tell you of miracles in my own family. God touching my daughter and bringing her back to life. I could point to Keir Peterson, who is not supposed to be alive today, or Jessica Wynn, who's lived longer than the doctor said she would, or the young girl we had here just a few weeks ago that was born with brain outside of her head. I believe in miracles. Many of you here tonight could testify of miracle after miracle of miracles where only God could have done what he's done. Lastly, look at the purpose of a miracle today. The purpose of miracles today. Believing in miracles, however, will will not save me, will not save you. It's not the miracle that we look at. There are Hindus, spiritualists, there are Muslims and Mormons who believe in miracles, and, and that's not enough. John said, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, He doesn't want you just to believe that, hey, miracles do happen. He wants you to believe that they happen so that they point to Jesus. And if we miss that part of it, then we've really missed the whole intention of what the miracle is for. But the point that there is a Christ, there is a Messiah, there is a King. If a miracle does not point to Christ, then it has lost the benefit of its very function. If it doesn't confirm the good news and result in saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, then a miracle is little better than a magic act. The point of signs and wonders in the life of Christ and in the church body today is to confirm the Word of God, to solidify it, which provides them the message of hope and for salvation for a world that desperately needs to know that Jesus Christ is still alive today. We sang that song tonight, Our God Saves, Our God Saves. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come to lift up your name. And when that happens, God can entrust us with miracles because it's not about, wow, so-and-so prayed for so-and-so, and then all of a sudden the, point, the, the, the attention gets put on the person who did the praying. And so everybody goes running over to that person, hey, pray for me, I need a miracle too, like it's the individual. Now, I, I don't, I don't want to negate the fact that God gifts certain individuals with with the gift of miracles, the gift of healing. But again, it's not the person. It's God's gift given to the individual for the purpose of lifting up Jesus Christ. And that has always got to be the focal point. And I, that thought just hit me this past week. Lord, I want you to get us as a church, as I prayed in my opening prayer, Lord, get us to the place as a church that we are out of the way so that Jesus can be seen, so that real signs and wonders can happen, so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And we would point to your saving power and your saving knowledge. Seems that there are people who are happy with sideshows and who never intend to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, just want to run around getting all the little goosebumps and screaming holler, roll around on the floor and all of that. 
I'm Pentecostal. I've been there. I've done all that stuff growing up. I, I know what it's like to be slain in the Spirit. I know what it's like to dance and kind of, sort of, uh, seen it anyway. And, and I know, I, I know, you know, old-fashioned Pentecost, they just got wild. Some of it I kind of had fun with, but none of that really means anything if we're not living a life. You know, there are churches here in town that, you know, we had church when everybody's screaming and hollering and the preacher's veins are popping out and, you know, and, and people are speaking in tongues everywhere and slain in the floor. And yet they can get up and go back into the world and still just be as carnal as they were when they got knocked down. And I just have issues with that. I'm as Pentecostal as any of you in here, so don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to get away from my roots. I'm just saying there's no purpose in getting knocked over if there's no transformation. God's not all about just blowing people over just to show that he's, he's God. He doesn't need to push somebody over to prove he's God. Amen? But there's, there's, there's a genuine as well. There's the genuine power of God. And God has purposes for what he does. So I believe in miracles, and I believe that God still uses men and women as instruments of miracles, but I, I do not believe in making merchandise of the gospel and trying to get rich off God's glory. I just find it so refreshing when you come across a ministry that says, listen, everything I have is yours. God gave it to me. I just give you access to it. Some of you have had the privilege of meeting Sam Solon, Sam Solon, in my mind, is a powerful, powerful man of God. And Sam Solon has resources for anything that Sam has. It's open. He never sells anything. He doesn't sell any books, tapes. He never sells any of that stuff. Yet he's a wealth of knowledge and has uh, volumes of written material that you could get access to any time. And then you have these other guys that go around and God gives them a little bit of revelation. Immediately they put it in a book and slap a, a price tag on it and want to get rich off of it. I personally have a hard time with that. I really do. And I think if God gives us things, he gives us. He says, freely you have received, so put a price tag on it and get rich. Right? Now he says, freely you've received, so freely give. Freely give. It makes a little difference to me if you jump or fall down when I pray for you. I'm not interested in making a name for myself based upon performance. Like, oh, Pastor Joe, he prayed for people and they all fell down. So, what did that prove? I'm interested... What I'm interested in is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you would have life through his name. That life-giving flow. Let me ask you this. As we close, musicians, if you want to make your way back. Simple question. Do you need a miracle in your life? It's really a yes or no question. Do you need a miracle in your life? Yes or no? And I want to say to you, God is still a miracle-working God. Jesus is the Christ, the one upon whom the, uh, the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord has come. And before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, He promised us that the same Spirit that anointed Jesus would be alive and well 
in the church today. And that he would continue to confirm his word with signs and wonders following. So I ask again, do you need a miracle? If you do, I've got good news for you. God hasn't lost his power. Amen? And he is more than able to meet your need. But be aware of this. The first and most important need in your life is to have that deep personal relationship, not with a miracle worker, but with the anointed Savior. And until you get that right, God's not obligating himself to do anything in your life. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said, your iniquities have separated you between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, and that he will not hear So we come to him as our Savior. All of a sudden we step into a flow or a realm where then God has the privilege of being able to place miracles in our life and show us the signs and wonders. You need a miracle. The place to begin is just being sure that it's right with your soul. God, I want my soul to be right. I don't want to be healed just because I got a physical need and God, right now I need that. God, what I want more than anything is I want to have an intimacy with you. And if a miracle results out of that, then that is awesome, God. But more than the miracle, I need Jesus.